I want to begin this evening's talk with a Hafiz poem that to me captures a little bit about the topic for tonight and a little bit about what we're doing here. It's called Cast All Your Votes for Dancing. I know the voice of depression still calls to you. I know those habits that can ruin your life still send their invitations. But you are with the friend now, and you look so much stronger. It's true. You can stay that way and even bloom. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companion's beautiful laughter. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from the sacred hands and the glance of your beloved and my dear, from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. Learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. (laughs) You are with the friend now. Learn what actions of yours delight her, what actions of yours bring freedom and love. Whenever you speak of the divine, dear pilgrim, my ears wish my head was missing so they could finally kiss each other and applaud all your nourishing wisdom. Oh, keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companion's beautiful laughter and from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. Now, sweet one, be wise. Cast all your votes for dancing. I would say I'd like to maybe riff on this a little bit or comment as I go along tonight since I'm not exactly sure uh, what I want to say. But I like to see what we've been doing here and what we are doing here is a little bit a lot, recognizing the counterfeit coins that may buy us a moment of pleasure, but then drag us for days like a broken man or woman behind a farting camel. (laughs) In so many ways, our practice is recognizing those experiences, uh, those, the phenomena that we often fall into a case of uh, either mistaken identity, as Anna was speaking about, the tendency to identify with our feelings and thoughts, sensations, but also fall into the entrancement of uh, our fantasies, plans, and the, the trick, you could say, that our mind plays to convince us that this moment, the one that we're actually, the only moment that we ever have, the only place that where we can find life, 
that this somehow this place of life is not the place we want to be. That the best is yet to come. That view that, that as I mentioned the other night, something about how our life starts to resemble a, a feeling of moving, of passing through from the past, passing through the present, on to the future. But we discover when we practice that we, we don't move anywhere. What we do is experience unfolding present moments. And in that headlong rush to what's next, we enter the, the trance of time, this little box, this little narrow vortex of time, imagining that we are going from somewhere to somewhere else when not one of us, not a single person here has ever left the present moment in truth. We've always been right here. We've imagined going a lot of places. But in fact, uh, we've just we've been here. So it's a, a, such a shame that we can our perception sometimes can get so colored by the entrancements of, of the more hopeful or expectant or positive view of, of the future when what is waiting is that, that open secret, that secret that this very friend is the friend, the friend that you were looking for is the light of the sun that is your own, um, you could say, present awareness. I like to think of the drops of the sun as that shining the light. There's one of uh, Hafiz's poems, which I don't have with me tonight. He says something to the effect of, how did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? it felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. So this is a reminder that we have this friend, we have this light of attention. And and by letting it touch the insignificant movements of our body and of our mind, allowing us to recognize the counterfeit coins, the different kinds of entrancements, the different kinds of views, the views of ourselves, all the ways that when they go unnoticed, lead us into a very narrow, I like to think of it as a narrow vortex, a, little, a small little world. I call it the world of the imagined me a world that is very small, that is very fearful. Of course, once we we associate our well-being with that counterfeit coin, once we associate our well-being with the future, which never, as several of us have said, doesn't exist and never will because time is always now, once we tether our well-being to the imagined future, because our unfolding is so uncertain, 
what will happen next in this unfolding present is so uncertain that attachment leaves us with a, a sense of, of, un, of anxiety. What if it doesn't work? All the while, the friend is waiting here. The friend that, that common denominator that Will spoke about. That capacity to be present with things just the way they are. Yata Bhuta. The good news is that we have the friend. The bad news is that all of us, as you probably noticed over the course of this retreat, all of us have very, very strong practice. But our practice has been uh, that case of mistaken coins and mistaken identity. So we have spent much of our life conditioning the habit of going out of ourselves, of disconnecting, of entering into our imaginations. And so this is very innocent, the fact that this has happened to all of us. It's not because we're bad, even though you may, when you notice how much, how much your mind wanders, the, there's a tendency to personalize that, and to say, I, I've let my mind wander. But that mind wandering as you probably noticed, just happens. Have you, has anybody seen the one who wanders? We just have to ask ourselves. This is a kind of open inquiry. That's the, the encouragement. As we create the conditions here for you to see what does your mind do? I know I'm, I'm putting my best effort at just remaining undistracted here. I want to be here. It's, isn't it amazing to be right here? It's so alive and vivid. I feel, I don't know about you, but I, when I'm here and alive and vivid, even if I'm in pain a little bit, there's a, it's so different than when, I, when I'm absorbed in one of those little dreamscapes where I'm somehow not good enough or I'm somehow missing that secret code to life and how to be happy. When I'm here, there's... It's great. Okay, so I'm, I'm totally, passionately committed to being here. And do you think when I sat down this evening, even though I passionately love being present, do you think my mind stayed right here? Quite unbidden, involuntarily, thoughts arose... Some moments, those thoughts were, were accompanied, that little sequence of what are called the five skandhas, sequence of a moment of contact with one of my senses, feeling, perception, mental formation, and consciousness. Those things happen thousands and thousands and thousands of times a day. Well, that, many of those moments in that little area called uh, mental formation. There was a there was what there was called a there was a ment- what's called a mental factor, and that mental factor is called mindfulness. Mindfulness is a little thing that sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. 
Some moments it was there and then, oh, mind's thinking about the talk. Sometimes my mindfulness was not present. I didn't plan it that way. I planned to be mindful the whole time. <laughs> but a few moments, there was an absence of that one little mental factor. And with those particular mental formations called thoughts and images and plans and expectations, my mind entered into that interior drama, that virtual reality that Will spoke of the other night, that imaginary version of life, the one that was yet to come. It's a miracle that we can do this, that we can think about the future and imagine it and all those things. But it's very different when it's a very different reality, as you may have noticed, when you're lost in that, when there's the absence of mindfulness, and when mindfulness shows up to recognize that that's what's happening. What we've been encouraging is to encourage that, uh, that friend to show up. That friend to show up. I loved Anna's story about showing up for yourself in the way that you would like a friend. Now, I can have the best intentions for that to happen, but my conditioning shows me that sometimes it shows up and sometimes it doesn't. It fluctuates, but it is a very reliable friend when it shows up. It is something we can put our trust in. And its very function is to help us recognize those counterfeit friends so that they don't run roughshod over our lives don't convince us we are someone who is not okay, not sufficient. So you could say the whole of our practice is to move slowly with these little drops of the sun, these little visits of the friend, that we move slowly from the narrow little world of our imagined me to this wider, more open gravitational field of the Dharma. And I've seen that happen for, uh, for all of you in the course of this retreat. You've used the manure of all the aches and pains and all the heartache and all the, the intense busyness of the mind. But each time you've, you've rubbed the tool of mindfulness against your against your being, you've, what was that line again? You've experienced the, the light against your being. Your hearts and your, your eyes have lightened. We, we all see that by getting a chance to look at you. I know you're not having meaningful eye can t- contact, but we are having it with you. <laughs> and it, it, it's beautiful. It's really a, a privilege to look at your intrinsic beauty and love, the way it shines naturally when it's given these conditions of safety and friendliness. Even if you're, even if it, no matter what you think about yourself, even if you think you're the only one here that is, uh, or the most unenlightened one here, nevertheless, to me, I think to all of us, you are each equally beautiful, a unique individual expression of life, miraculously 
have, you've come into existence through the, all those contingent forces I spoke of the other night. Your parents, your parents' parents, your culture, your earth, air, fire, water, all those things have conspired in the only way they could to form this unique display of life called, uh, called you. So you're here in vivid, intrinsically light and beautiful uh, presence. That's the good news. <laughs> but you also spend a lot of your time in that imaginary version of yourself that plays in your mind. The version that I like to say of somebody who doesn't actually even exist. The version of an imagined you. The one that's always measuring how high, how low, how good. The plagued plagued intensely with the with the vulnerability increasing um, the vulnerability increasing um, impossible task of measuring up the impossible task of trying to find something in that little sea of imagination that's stable Something that I can say, this is me, and it's good enough. But our mind, because that whole imaginary version is dependent on thinking, and what do you know about your thinking now, after being here? Where are all those thoughts that you had today? Anna was mentioning, maybe she didn't mention this, the statistics, but uh, it said that we have 65,000 thoughts every day. And that, oh, she did say this part. And that 90% of them are repeats from the day before. <laughs> so an identity that's dependent on thought, it's very insecure. It's very fragile. And that leaves a residue. It leaves our body in a state of, of, um, of unsettledness, of groundlessness, you could say. That's the, what we would call the psychological version of groundlessness. But our practice isn't to make this wrong and make ourselves bad because we keep incarnating in these imaginary versions and taking them to be, taking them to be true. But these thoughts and the effect of these thoughts need our love. They need our mercy. We need, we need to, as this is the line that often goes through my mind, we need to love the house that ego built. Because <laughs> it's building it over and over. And ego gets a bad name. It's, it's very, it's, it's innocent attempt is to find security. It's really out of love for yourself that your mind does all this dancing, this, all this suffering-making. But it's because of what the Buddha called avidya, or wrong view. 
that this, this innocent attempt to find relief, this misidentification with these thoughts, um, this tendency toward misidentification brings with it uh, so much suffering. So you are with the friend now. You have this capacity to love this house at Ego Built. But that capacity to love the house of Ego Built requires, or it asks us, to notice how that works. How it is, moment by moment, we construct this version of ourselves and begin to see the difference between that version of yourself that plays in your mind and be a little less confident about that version and start to be a little bit more confident about the immediate version of yourself that you experience right here. Now just notice, as Dujim Rinpoche says, after your last thought has ceased about yourself and before the next one arises, Notice what your experience is. Notice notice what's here after your last version of yourself and before the next one gets picked up again. Maybe somebody could tell me what you experience or what you notice when you're momentarily free of these particular preoccupations. What's that? Frog. So hearing, right, frog, thank you. What, what else? How about the internal experience? External's fine, but it's the internal, what we call internal. Compassion. Compassion. Space. Space. Nothing. Nothing. Yes. Peace. Fullness. 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 Freedom. Freedom. Home. Home. Now, how much work did we do to recognize that, to discover that. How far did we have to travel? You have to travel, how long does it take to get to, to San Rafael or Los Angeles? How long did it take to get there? You just described what's, what's here when we come out of the tangle of, of our imagined version. Rumi says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of fear thinking, or me thinking. Live in silence. Flow down and down and down, and ever widening rings of being. You notice how when we suspend those views for a moment, we're just here together, it's kind of sweet. There's a, kind of, there's a kind of feeling of non-separateness, sense of, sense of not to. But we're not creating that. That's what's here. That's what's here when we, when the, as one of my favorite teachers, Nisargadatta, says, when the dust of memory has been cleared for a moment. The, the clear mirror of our mind is laid bare. 
everything reflected much more clearly. This is what happened to the Buddha. He just saw that whatever he imagined was just coming and going. And the more he noticed what was going on, the more he just noticed what was going on, it tended to, it, it brightened his mind. It was like brushing, brushing the dust of memory. He wasn't quieting his mind. He wasn't clearing his mind out. He was, he was simply increasing that, exp- that experience of knowing, of noticing. So when we're together like this, it's very different than that than that um, than when we're caught in that little narrow world of our imagination. So we can't get attached to this either, because after a few moments, doesn't isn't it true? A thought arises, usually some kind of me thought. Wow, I'd like to hold on to that one, or whatever. If, thought, if that thought is noticed, if mindfulness happens to show up in that moment of thinking, if that thought is noticed, it's recognized as no different than this, sitting together in an open field of creative possibility, not, not just another thought. But what happens if that thought goes unnoticed? This is where This is where the encouragement is to keep putting those drops of sun on your, those insignificant movements of your holy body. When that thought goes unnoticed, as Dujim Rinpoche said, it it spreads out into ordinary thinking. Those 65,000 thoughts. And he calls that the chain of delusion. Because it's in that, it's in those moments of unknowing that we enter into that imaginary version of ourselves. And this will happen. And every time we, every time it happens, at whatever point we wake up and realize that we have not been around the world and back, that we never even left here, at whatever point we wake up to where we are, instead of berating ourselves from, for having, from having had many moments where that, because of conditioning, that little mental factor of mindfulness wasn't there, could not be helped given our conditioning, instead of berating ourselves, we can appreciate that the sun is out again. We can notice, oh, that's the planning mind. That's the traveling mind. That's the judging mind. That's the rehearsing mind. <laughs> I have a talk here, but <laughs> I would have no idea where to start in it. <laughs>
So our practice asks us to begin to not delete these counterfeit coins, not try to get rid of anything, but to begin to make that profound shift that we've all been pointing to throughout the retreat. But it was highlighted this morning in Anna's instructions on thoughts. Make that profound shift from being lost in thought to noticing that we're thinking or we have been thinking. It's really the difference between living in delusion and being free. Is to, so it's not getting rid of anything. It's simply noticing, oh, this is, it's so different. If, I'm, if I am building what we call, often call on retreat the, the VV, any of you have a VV? A VV is called a Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> Where someone in the retreat has is, is triggered something somebody said or did or a thought that you had about something. It triggered a moment of of unpleasantness and triggered a, a, a reaction of dislike, of not liking, that, that went unnoticed, was followed by, by aversion, then followed by the, the pressure of the aversion, then spawned a whole drama in your mind about how that person was the reason for all your misery or that situation. <laughs> and that if only they were gone or didn't breathe so loud or didn't take so much food or didn't slam the door and the whatever it was, that you'd be happy. <laughs> and when we're lost in the vendetta, it is high drama. It is the, it's a matter of, it's life or death. Whether or not things change and they need, to, they need to be different. But for a moment, just consider... Mindfulness showing up and go, oh, this is a Vipassana vendetta. What happens to that whole apparatus? Oh, this is anger. Anger feels like this. Oh, wow, it's so, my body is so contracted. What happens to that contraction when I feel it? Whoa, it's, it's filling up my chest and I'm starting to shake a little bit. Oh, oh, now it's fading. Oh, so that's what a Vipassana vendetta is like. So just a little shift with a little encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we remain, not in this case, frightened, but we remain angry. So the encouragement is, we, is that we wake up to, when we wake up, we wake up to where we are. We wake up to whatever it is our mind is doing. And it can be very useful to notice I think there's an effect to noticing what our top ten tunes are. What, it is it, what is it that plays frequently in our mind? And the Buddha described three prominent ways that our mind uh, leans or it inclines when it's, um, when it's in one of its creative modes, of, <laughs> the creative mode of the creation of, of dukkha. Now, the beautiful thing about all the ways that our mind creates dukkha, when we know dukkha, when we recognize dukkha, it becomes the cause of sukha. That sukha that 
that we use, literally, we use our difficulties, we use the mental, even the, the crazy thoughts that we have, we use them in support of, in behalf of our awakening. So it's, whatever you notice is good news. Even if you notice that you're, you're uh, tormenting yourself. It's easy for me to say that right now. It's because it feels terrible to torment ourselves. But the moment that's noticed, oh, that's the tormenting mind. That very torment has actually increased the light of the sun. Increased the capacity to be with the friend. So the Buddha recommended that we especially pay attention to three ways that our mind trips out, three or four ways. One was the way that our mind starts with these little reactions and and enters into this very complicated world, complicated internal world, first and foremost around desire or aversion, as I talked about the Vipassana Vendetta. The reverse of the Vipassana Vendetta on retreats, for those of you who haven't been before, is called the Vipassana Romance, where there's someone that triggers the the pleasant feeling or sensation. And that pleasant one goes a little bit unnoticed and is easily immediately followed by liking and then wanting and then craving and then I've got to have it. And pretty soon it's, it's romance, travel, <laughs> marriage, couples counseling. <laughs> <laughs> Successful. <laughs> but these worlds that we enter into, the, the Buddha called papancha, or proliferation, or complication, or a kind of compulsion to think. And we can begin to notice, oh, this is papancha, this is my mind spinning. Rather than making it all about me, all about mine, we can see this is the way the mind is constructing the house that ego built. Because always, when there is a desire, in the story of desire, there's always the imagined me as the central character who is determined to, in the course of time, if all goes well, to find the great happiness that I'm searching for. So it's so innocent on one way, one way, but it's complete delusion. So to be able to wake up and notice, oh, this is what's called tanha papancha, the, the, the complication that comes uh, associated with craving, with thirst. I debate about, debated about reading this tonight, but I, since I have it here, and I like it so much. It's just such a beautiful description of papancha, the papancha around craving, the way we create our identity and our, uh, around desire. This is a poem from a fellow named George Bilger called Unwise Purchases. They sit around the house not doing much of anything. 
the boxed set of the complete works of Verdi, unopened, the complete Proust, unread, the French-cut silk shirts, which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French silk shirt. (laughs) The reflector telescope I thought would unlock the mystery of the heavens, but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road, (laughs) and, and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. (laughs) I like to think that one thing led to another between them and that by tape six or so, they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in (laughs) Seville or Terre Haute, but I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I've constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes on the table, where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set. A woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming... (laughs) has always dreamed of meeting. (laughs) And while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen, fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet, while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. So you can see if you've worked with your mind, if you've worked with, if you've let the friend, let the light of the sun start to shine on what your mind's doing, you can come to a place where you can speak of the movements of your mind and feel even about them with a kind of humor, with a sense of humor, where you can, you can not be so much in contention with the way that your mind is working. As Suzuki Roshi says, you shouldn't, uh, if you try to stop your mind, it means you're bothered by it. And as long as you're bothered by it, it will torment you mercilessly. So the implication here is somehow we have to shift from that contentious relationship with these very human tendencies to spin out rather than meet them with judgment the practice asks us to meet them with mercy and kindness and a sense of humor. Kabir had that sense of humor in one of his very simple poems where he said, Friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes 
and wore a robe, but I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap, but I throw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. (laughs) I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. (laughs) When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. This is somebody that had perspective on the house that ego built. This is what our minds do. So the Buddha talked about the compulsion to create uh, that imaginary version of ourselves through desire, through what he called ditti, uh, Papanchar, through views and opinions. And that's basically what I was talking about before, all the views and opinions of, about myself. I'm, and these can be very subtle. We can develop a whole narrative about feeling a little bit um, under the weather. And it can harden into a, a real sense of identity. Especially those who, and all of us, this will include all of us in the course of our lives, but we are all subject to, to illness. But there's a difference between the experience of being ill with all its symptoms that are changing and what's, whatever's going on with our body, there's a difference between the experience of that and the, the story or the, the view that we create about it, the opinions about it, the conclusions about it, the analysis of it. And I noticed when I was traveling in India, I remember this story a lot, especially at times when I talk about the personality view, what the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, the views of ourselves, the imaginary version. When I went to visit a teacher of mine named H.W.L. Punja in India, I arrived at his doorstep in the beginnings of feeling incredibly ill. And then Started to, had a lot of nausea, had a lot of high fever, and it was my body was discharging from every possible opening. And he immediately sent me to, to bed, and I made it over to this little government rest house where I, was, where I was staying. And in the next few days, as I convalesced, without knowing it, I, I built up a whole story about being. Uh, being so sick. And finally, after he had sent me some food, some big chunks of cheese, and some encouragement uh, from friends, and a few, um, and as I was feeling a little bit better, I made my way back to, to see him. I came all the way, traveled all the way to India to see him. I heard so many good things about him. And I finally made my way across the Ganges River. I had to cross a few bridges and kind of trudge my sick body along the side of the Ganges. And I picked up some bananas on my way to see him. And then these monkeys jumped out of the tree and took my bananas. And and I was just caught in this still. But I I was determined to, to see him and finally made my way to the little building where he was seeing people and walked up the several flights of stairs and 
huffing and puffing, and I got to the little room where he was meeting with everyone, and he, and he greeted me, and he said, how are you feeling? And I said, well, I'm feeling much better, but I'm still sick. And he looked at me with laser eyes, as though he saw, he saw right through my, my little drama that I was playing in my mind. And he looked at me, and he said, where is sick? And I couldn't find where sick was. And at that moment, I got this surge of energy, this surge of vitality that had been depressed, not because of the symptoms that I was experiencing, but because I had, I had incarnated in that, in that personality view of the one who's sick. So I think we all, have, we all do this in many different ways. And of course, being sick is no fun, but we can begin to see how much do we embellish our situation, our predicament, with adding the burden of an identity view around it? You can see tonight when we, for one moment, suspended the identity, your identity view, suspended your last view, and before the next one, I bet there's not a person here that could find, if they really looked on present evidence, they could find that there was anything in real time, that it's wrong with you. That that requires a consultation with the old personality view. It requires a consultation with your memory. And so that freedom, being with the friend, letting the light of the sun shine on your being, is a split second away. And how does it? How does it? How does the friend able to show up? We, it is benefited by by our encouragement, by the willingness to keep doing it. That's why those simple drops of the sun, simple steps, simple chews, swallows, whatever it is, simple connection when you're conversing with someone, just that simple effort, that we, the capacity we have in our mind to connect with what's happening and for as long as it lasts, sustain that connection. Two qualities that every single person has in their mind called vitaka vichara. These two qualities are the, are the, the very gre- ingredients that bring, uh, that bring a sense of well-being, that bring us back to that sense of presence, bring us into that feeling of a calm abiding. And that's simply what we did in that moment where I invited you to, to uh, see what's here after your last thought, before the next one. We just applied the, our mind to come here. And when you come here, all you'll mostly find, somebody, you said frogs, all we ever find, really, well, you find the ordinary and the extraordinary in the ordinary, but you find basically six experiences. That's the whole of our life. Seeing hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing the body, thinking, being conscious of that, of those coming and going, whichever one is occurring. And that's all. No me, as Ajahn Chah said, no me, no you, no self at all, just what there is. You don't need You don't need 
that identity view to function. In fact, when you have no view about yourself, you'll function 200% better. The thought of being without our identity scares the hell out of us. But we do it all the time in these simple moments of mindfulness. We do it all the time when we're just listening or when we're hearing or when we're, when we're immersed in something. But our practice encourages this cessation of the grasping to an identity view, to this kind of ditti, this kind of view. The last view that I, I'll speak about, the last kind of proliferation, we've talked about it already, but it's something that you can, by identifying it, you can start to make a shift and stop believing it as much. And that is the, the, what the Buddha called mana papancha. Mana is the word in Pali for pride or conceit or better known as the comparing mind. The Buddha talked about three kinds of comparing mind and you can, you can start to notice this. One was called atimana, those, I, those views about yourself where you elevate yourself. That's the, the superiority view, above. I'm above that person. Then there's the amana, which is I'm less than. Any of you have any of those today? How many, did any of you, were any of you mindful of having that? Did it make any difference that there was mindfulness? Oh, that's comparing. It's really liberating to, to use that, to have that friend with you called mindfulness. And then the equality view is another one that's, that's kind of insidious. The equality view is called just straight mana. It means I'm equal to. It's still the mind that's measuring, making sure that I'm okay. And the comparing mind is so lethal when it goes unnoticed because often we're c- comparing to an impossible ideal. And I think it's most, and this is one of the seed causes of the judging mind, which is just, in most cases, the self-judgment is another version of of mana, of conceit or pride. Putting down, putting up. But it's particularly prevalent in our culture. Many of you have probably read this before, but the Dalai Lama was just blown away, shocked by the level of self-judgment that is so pervasive in our culture. He didn't quite understand it at first. But we tend to live in this, this idealized, this excessive, it's wonderful that we're idealistic, but we're excessively idealistic. And we tend to internalize some of those ideals with our movie stars and our, our rich and famous. And, and then consequently, if we're believing that fake version of ourselves that plays in our mind, we, we're always coming out with a, with a deep sense of, of deflation and contraction. Some have noticed this with a sense of humor. One person framed this poem, or this, this commentary, 
It's called inner strength. If you can start the day without caffeine or stimulants, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, this is some of our spiritual ideals, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you, when through no fault of yours something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and conceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without alcohol, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all these things, you are probably the family dog. (laughs) So the good news is that we can begin to notice that one who is above, below, equal, does not exist. But that's not to say you don't exist. You are here in your beauty and your living color and your full presence with the senses wide open. Complete capacity. Completely with the same nature of consciousness, of presence, that at one exactly with the Buddha but you are not who you imagine yourself to be. Who you imagine yourself to be is mostly an insult to what you, what you can recognize. All you can say here is, you can't really say, there's not any words to describe what we are in real time. Except I am or here. Even that. This is what our practice can help us to appreciate. So we live, as Kala Rinpoche says, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. He says there is a reality and that you are that reality. And when you understand this, you will see that you are nothing that can be described, that you're nothing. But being nothing, you're everything. You can see that there's, well, I don't want to say too much. (laughs) Other than, I'll just give you another version from Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, where he says, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between these two, my life flows. So I'd like to just end with a brief poem. from Derek Walcott, called Love After Love. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror. And each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, 
eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread. Give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. So no need to change posture. We'll just remain silent for a moment. May all beings love the house that ego built. Thanks for your attention. Uh, We have 30 minutes for a walking practice for putting drops of the sun on the insignificant movements of your holy body. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.